Welcome to Plan for Divorce, your next chapter with host Brooke Benson. Over the next hour, you'll learn from experienced professionals the options you have to make smart decisions in your own divorce journey. Now, here is your host. Hi there, my name is Brooke Benson. Welcome to Plan for Divorce, your next chapter. I saw a wedding planning magazine and realized people need the same kind of guide for getting unmarried. I do not advocate for divorce. In fact, I don't even get involved in relationship issues at all. If you decide to end a relationship or your partner does, I am here to help with sensible, practical, and often low-cost ways to prepare for the split. Only when you know what you want can you work towards your own best outcomes. And there are many professions with specialties in the area of divorce. This show is dedicated to hearing from them, compiling some of their best information, and incorporating it into my workbook by the same name, now available for download at planfordivorce.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Today, we are very fortunate to have two gentlemen with lots of experience in the topic of divorce. My first guest is Mike Fonseca, who is the National Director of Sales for Soberlink. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, it's great to have you here. As <clears throat> excuse me, as you already know, I only became familiar with Soberlink about a year ago. So tell our listeners what what the device actually is, and tell us a little bit about the technology. Sure. So Soberlink's been around since 2000, late 10 or early 11. We're a smart handheld remote breath device with a lot of software behind it. So we're an alcohol monitoring system. Recording in progress. So we're an alcohol monitoring uh, system, hardware and software. And if you've actually never seen the device, I'm holding it in my hand. Uh, That's like the size. It's actually maybe a little smaller than a cell phone. It is definitely shorter. It's a little bit wider than than a cell phone. But uh, it actually, the device has an embedded camera. And when prompted to test, you blow into it, it takes your photograph. We do 100% of the facial recognition and through cell or Wi-Fi, we send real-time compliance alerts to the concerned parties. So in family law specifically, it's typically the uh, spouse or ex-spouse, depending on the state. Sometimes there's uh, attorneys for the children, guardian ad litems, depending on the state. And uh, oftentimes attorneys want to be added as contacts, not so much in real time, but to be able to, be able to communicate directly for uh, legal affidavits and a lot of uh, legal support that might be required, or just simply to get compliance reports stating that their client's been in compliance and everything's going as, uh, as expected. And, and It's a remarkable technology. Can an individual only be monitored like at times of child custody or can they be monitored for longer periods? So, we do all sorts of different types of monitoring. In family law, we are able to monitor during parenting time only, or we're able to monitor full time for full abstinence monitoring. So an example is for someone being monitored full time, they would test first thing in the morning, sometime in the afternoon or midday, and then before bedtime. 
And then in parenting time monitoring, we recommend starting to test the morning before exchange. For example, if I'm dad and I'm picking the kids up Friday after school, I would start testing the morning of exchange before I pick up the children at school and then start my testing sequence. Uh, typically, it's two to four times per day around sleep time. And it just depends on the risk levels as far as how many tests per day one is required to use. So an example is if if I've been sober and in, in uh, remission for multiple years, I would probably only be testing twice a day versus if it's still a high risk case and it's contentious and there's still a bunch of unknowns, um, they might be testing three to four times per day. Uh, the other thing that people always ask as well, because there's a lot of products out there in criminal courts that get used for alternative sentencing and Soberlink and it falls under our healthcare division. It's a zero tolerance product. And we're able to test less times per day versus, uh, for example, a criminal product, which has a minimum threshold. Just a quick example is like uh, ignition interlocks get used oftentimes, say um, it's a hardwired product that goes into a car that immobilizes it if they blow 0.03 or greater, depending on the state you're in. And um, those we like to say, keep the car sober, not the individual. Sometimes and most people have more than one automobile in their household, so they can put it in one car and drive another, um, as well as they might not drive that car at all. And uh, right. there's just no way of knowing in real time. So the way I understand this, um, let's say you are the dad and you go to pick up your kids and, and you blow in it and you get a test result, that data is available to anyone who has the login for that particular client. Is that the case? So in real time, a therapist or a family lawyer could look to see what's been recorded? Correct. So we call them contacts and it's unlimited. As long as they have uh, an email address or a cell phone number, we can prompt compliance text or emails. Because we're HIPAA compliant, we send just the notification saying this person was in compliance at this time. But if there's ever any non-compliance issues, details could be extracted, including photographs, BAC, all timestamps, as well as uh, all, all forms of communication history. This is fascinating. How do people find this product? Is it typically referred by a family lawyer or a caseworker? So we got into family law in late 2015, and we Typically, we got started either through an attorney that dealt with mixed criminal and family matters, where they might have been known of some sort of products like ours. But uh, we started doing marketing to end users, to people going through divorce. And as we worked through state levels of family law sections, uh, county levels of family law sections, offering education, um, for example, this Coming Sunday, I'll be at the uh, State Bar of Texas Family Law um, event, which is almost 2,000 family law professionals. And uh, that's all I'll be doing is talking about Soberlink features and benefits. And several folks that have used it in the past might be very familiar with it. But there's, you know, unless an attorney's had a case where it's been needed, they might not know all the nuances and best practices and offer a lot of enlightening, enlightening uh, information to be able to have successful uh, monitoring plans. So it seems like it's, I mean, not new, but fairly new. How were these kinds of issues handled before? 
Like if you were concerned about the other parent drinking before picking up the children, what were the options like? So there was people using handheld breath devices where let's say I'm dad and I go pick up the kids and mom would make me blow into a device before I in front of the kid. Well, hopefully in front of of, gosh, but then, then, you know, as you can imagine, that's at the time and who knows what's going on after that. Right. And then, you know, I mentioned those ignition interlocks, um, depending on how risky the, the case was, if, if they had a history of alcohol use disorder and say, a DUI or a DWI, depending on the state that you're in, and, and had multiple ones. I, I know several clients that have had multiple DWIs, and uh, they might be, for criminal purposes, be on some other form of product, like an ankle bracelet. And uh, once they graduate from there, the concerned parent might have some doubts once they graduate after probation, and, and uh, we were able to allow a nice resource for them. But back to, you know, the question is, what were they using? People would go do ETG testing or urine analysis, mm-hmm. and they're just, they just don't work for alcohol. Um, not only are they not real time, alcohol eliminates so quickly, and that's part of the education to the legal community is understanding alcohol and how it eliminates uh, and how rapidly it eliminates. Gotcha. Okay. Great. So I'm assuming any information, any data that you're collecting, um, I know you said that you're HIPAA compliant, is all of the the documentation and the history that the device broadcasts, is that admissible in court? It is. Our uh, product is admissible in all criminal and family courts, in all 50 states and internationally now. Um, we've been able to gather enough data, like we're over a quarter of a million people monitored now, to be able to decipher if someone's truly consuming or if, for example, if the excuse that always gets used is uh, mouth alcohol, which is like mouthwash, for example, Mm -hmm. it's typically the most common used excuse. And we've got some retest measures in place that eliminates that gray area of being maybe uh, making the excuse of mouthwash. And the example is if someone tests positive with our product, they are contractually obligated to retest until alcohol is eliminated or up to six consecutive tests. And those markers tell us if it's truly consumption or if it's incidental mouth alcohol. An example is if I used Listerine with alcohol, which is almost 30% alcohol by volume, I would test positive and without rinsing my mouth, doing anything. In 15 minutes, I would test negative. Okay. That's Um, why I was wondering how quickly that would actually take place. So if it were something where they just swished around in their mouth, it doesn't take very long for that to disappear. Correct. And that would be considered mouth alcohol, something that's not ingested or swallowed. Now, if someone says it's mouthwash and they test, three or four times positive, then that means they drank alcohol and drank the mouthwash and it'll make them sick. Hopefully they don't, they don't go to that uh, case, but there's hundreds of products that, that contain alcohol. We deal with false positives on a regular basis. And uh, we tell people if they absolutely have to use products with alcohol to use it first and then test and they'll never have an issue. Right. That's a good idea. Or, so, I'm sorry, re- in reverse, test first and then use it. I'm sorry. Okay. 
Oh, I see what you're saying. So test first and then try it. And then can they, is it unlimited how many times they can use it if they're under, under the program? So the device never shuts off. Um, most people don't test outside of their agreed terms, but they're able to test as many times as they want. Uh, most people only test when they're required to. Um, but we, we also have specific documents that they agree to that they're the only ones able to test to not wear sunglasses, to not wear hats, things that would hurt the possibility of facial recognition to verify the person who's supposed to be testing as well as, as, well as being in a, in a well-lit area. Yeah. When you, the first time you and I talked about this device, I didn't realize the facial recognition technology was part of it because you know, I have grandchildren and I know how their minds work. It seems like it would be very easy to hand it off to someone else or, you know, get the kid to blow in it or something. So it's good to know that that facial recognition technology, we use it for our cell phones. So it's, it's, makes sense that you would use it for something like this. Um, are there suggested terms on how long someone should be monitored if they're maybe under suspicion for drinking when they've got possession of the kids? Is it a long-term thing or is it something that typically just, you know, you start out after the divorce is final monitoring the other person and then it kind of, you know, you can drop out of it. So the, 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 the answer to that is it depends on each case. Uh, Soberlink's verbiage recommends usage for a term of one year. Um, I could tell you that the average person stays on it for six and a half months because they either graduate through their term of the year, for example, or they can't get through the first weekend without having non-compliance issues. We're starting to get a lot of attorneys that are using it preemptively. Um, they'll go through their first interview and ask their clients if they might be, uh, you know, targeted with drugs or alcohol that might come up during the course of the divorce. And uh, attorneys will start to use this on a trial period just to see what kind of client they have on their hands. And then if they are abstinent for, say, say an attorney asks their client to stay sober for a month and the results are to go to that attorney or their office and they abstain for a month, they, that's, that's a good um, resource to have when it does come up that, you know, my client abstained for one month. I don't think the uh, accusation is actually worthy of sort. And it's, it's, it works for both sides to end uh, the here's, he said, she said type of scenario. So this just sounds, you know, at first blush, like it might be kind of expensive. How, how is the cost distributed to the parties in the case of a divorce? So typically the testing party is the one who uh, has to pay for the service, the one who's being accused of having the problem or known of, of having the problem. And the out-of-pocket cost is the hardware. Let me give an example. If they agree to use it for a year, the out-of-pocket is $300. They purchase the device, they own it. And then we do a partial buyback when they graduate from the device. And then we do a monthly subscription, which is paid for on the back end. So it's prorated depending on when they start in the month. And then they charge a monthly fee on the back end. The average person spends just under $200 per month. So simple math, you're looking at between $2,500 and $3,000, depending on the level of monitoring that you're, uh, that you're getting through the course of the year. 
we do offer split terms, uh, not was, for the hardware. Okay, not for the hardware, but for the actual service. For the service, we do, and it could be 50-50, 60 40 70 30 We, we, can, we could uh, accommodate any percentage level, and um, that's basically how it works. Pretty simple and easy to use. And one thing that I always tell people that don't know how easy it is is we do electronic documentation and agreements. They never have to leave the comfort of their home or office. We ship Federal Express, and they could start as quickly as next day, uh, except for Sunday. But Monday through Saturday, they could request overnight delivery and start their monitoring. And I had a case this morning that an attorney was wanting their client to start because their visitation was this Friday. And I said, well, tell them to get online and over it, order it overnight so they'll receive it Thursday, and it won't uh, hinder their their uh, agreed visitation, which starts Friday. That's great. I like that you could sort of have a prove up ahead of collecting the kids and also have it be documented. I mean, let's go back just for a minute on the payment of it. I was listening to the way you described it. The person who is being tested pays for it. And I'm just thinking about my own divorce experience. And if I had tried to say, you know, I want you to do this, it's hard to imagine him agreeing to not only be the one tested, but to also bear the costs. Do you find that that comes up when you're dealing with family lawyers and how they deploy this technology? It does. And we do get the concerned parent, we call them, that sometimes offers um, part of their uh, resources to pay for the service. And uh, it, it is very common. Typically, there's some form of history that's known, though, when they're going through the divorce, whether it's just known alcohol abuse. Um, when parenting, typically, it's uh, they have some history of drinking and driving that, uh, that has reason to be accused. So if they have those things already on them, then uh, typical courts favor inside of the child's best well-being and, and it's all about the safety of the children they will they will put it on the testing party if that's the case okay i i have personal experience with this topic my uh, ex-husband had some drug issues and he only agreed to be tested if i agreed to pay for the testing so i was the only you know, what, 35, 36-year-old woman I knew who had an account with any lab tests now. It was just, you know, it was, but but I was willing to pay for it because I did want to ensure that he was sober when he was collecting the kids. Does this device detect anything besides alcohol? Only alcohol. And uh, the reason, like I mentioned, is Alcohol eliminates on an average of 0 0.015 BHC to 0 0.02 per hour. So give an example, like 0 0.08 is, is uh, considered intoxicated for driving. Elimination would might be, if you get to 0 0.08 to get to zeros, could be four to five hours, depending on the person. And uh, we get a lot of folks that start drinking after their last night's tests and they want to see if they can get away with uh, blowing negative in the morning and they can have one drink, two drinks. By the time they get to the third drink, they end up testing positive in the morning. But now to answer the question, as far as other products, there's not a breath device yet. That's cost effective to uh, measure 
drugs. It's coming. There's some things that you can do, like mouth swabs, um, but it's really hard to get real-time results for drugs outside of lab testing and confirmation. But also know that drugs typically stay in your system a little bit longer. Cocaine mm-hmm. is pretty eliminates quickly, but like today, marijuana is a hot topic. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of presentations around, and that's always the commonly asked question. And for daily marijuana users, it stays in their system for a month. And if they're recreational weekend users, it's basically a week. So if they're testing weekly, they're going to test positive. Right. Um, the other thing, too, is for, for alcohol, there's expensive tests like PETH tests, which are blood tests. And uh, those can go back to, to two weeks. They're about $300 per test. So they're very expensive. You, it, it's intrusive. You still have to go somewhere with a nurse to draw it. And they're not real-time results, so but there's multiple ways for testing drugs that are viable. Most cities have labs, like you said, you had a, uh, an account with the mm-hmm. with the collection site, yeah, and you were you were probably getting regular emails of of compliance reports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that yes, exactly. They would just email, but it, but it was really only good for that time, as you pointed out. Just the attorney I was using had. Uh, her requirement, which was that he had to have three clean tests in a row. And it took a while for that to happen, three consecutive tests. Um, do you generate any sort of photographs or documentation as as a you know part of all of this? And how does that get used typically in the case of a divorce? Photographs confirming identity? or uh-huh. From the facial recognition or any kind sure. of documentation that you can turn over to the attorney and say, look, you know, here's the here's the time that they were testing and here were the results. Sure. So every test, a photograph is taken and stored indefinitely. So when an attorney or a client asks us for a detailed report because they have a, a court hearing and they want uh the test history from either start date to current date, or if it's just a specific potential non-compliance window, they contact our compliance department, which is our legal team. We verify that the person asking for it is warranted access to it. And we furnish detailed reports that has every photograph of every test taken. Sometimes they're, they looks like the old style phone book that they're going to court with, if, depending mm-hmm. on how long they've been testing. But Every photograph gets looked at. So even if facial recognition doesn't pick it up, it goes into a queue of visual uh, verification. And within 60 seconds, it's verified. So we just say real-time facial recognition. Right. How did you get started in this work? Um, I'm just curious to know. You're very knowledgeable, obviously, about the product. What is it about it that appealed to you that made this you know, something you would like to dedicate your professional time to? Well, that was a tricky question. So <laughs> when, when I when I first started in this, and and I was completely not in this space. Uh, I was I was in the sporting goods uh, sales um, realm. I was I'm a big golfer, so I got I was in the golf business before. Gotcha. And the founder and CEO um, had an idea, came to market, and in 2010. Um, was offering some free trials to people um, that were wanting to help with behavioral change with people dealing with alcohol use disorder and more being um, 
technology based, but also just trying to grow accountability with people that you've lost accountability with through Mm -hmm. alcohol use disorder. And I actually got approached by a guy in Dallas who offered uh, criminal monitoring products for Dallas County. Turned out he had 13 offices around Texas and he bought our first thousand devices. And he actually taught me a lot about the business. Mm-hmm. I was going around the, the state educating probation officers and probation directors on best practices. I got to learn about all various products that are available. When we knew we were getting FDA cleared as a medical device, we could start going into some different sectors. Like give an example, we, we do business with 11 major airlines. Mm. We do business with all lawyers assistance programs in all 50 states. We do business with, you've heard of like Hazleton or Betty Ford or Karen. Sure. They, mm-hmm. they all use this for alcohol now. Um, so we've become known as the, uh, the best real-time alcohol monitoring product in the industry. But back to how I got started. Uh, when we sold the criminal justice rights in 2015, I was getting a ton of requests from divorce attorneys saying, you know, if you could tweak your software a little bit, I think it'd be a great viable tool for, uh, for matrimonial cases. And our CEO really wasn't going down that path. He actually said, you know, if you want it, you could run it. You could do it yourself. And uh, we kind of found that path quickly grew and uh i spend three out of four weeks traveling to various states educating judges attorneys guarded item guardian ad litems uh, mental health experts that deal in matrimonial disputes on best practices in in in, uh, in family law the example is last tuesday i was in cook county which is chicago and i trained 21 judges live in the judges chambers and it was very enlightening because typically judges don't like to ask those strange or difficult questions in front of attorneys. Other judges or, yeah, in front of, is it, Yeah, but when they were with other judges, they just opened up and it was really enlightening and the communication was really great. And since then, we've been emailing other things. And one thing that they didn't know, for example, is we have a family assistance program. So if people can't afford us, they can apply online or an attorney can apply online or a court could apply online for their client. And depending on their financial situation, we could donate the hardware, donate the monthly or donate both. So we, we now that we uh, are in the financial situation we're in, we're able to give back and help absolutely everyone. We, we do this wonderful. on a regular basis. What about yeah. things like domestic violence shelters? Do you work with the nonprofit sector that is trying to help some of these families kind of put the pieces back together? We do. We do. It falls under our healthcare, and uh, typically there's clinicians that deal specifically with those facilities, and uh, we've got a team that dedicates their time specifically to them. One of the things that really appealed to me the first time you and I talked about this product, and and it it fits in so nicely with the reason I started this show, is that we know as adults that sometimes our behavior you know, especially over a long period of time, if trust really erodes in an intimate relationship and, you know, the two people are kind of losing respect for each other and there are a lot of of repeat, you know, bad behavior, this is sort of a way to look for a second chance. I mean, if you're having 
to pick up your children from the other person and be able to demonstrate sobriety and demonstrate your willingness to change your own habits. It seems like there are probably a lot of success stories for people who use this. Maybe the marriage doesn't make it, but they can salvage their relationship with their children. Have you observed some of this? I mean, I know you're really kind of far removed from the end user, but surely you hear stories about how this impacts a family. We do. And it's exactly what you say. We, when I talk to uh, matrimonial professionals, I always say it's, it's an accountability tool and over time helps exactly regain trust. And that's the goal. Uh, the parent child is one thing, but the parent to ex-parent, there's always that question mark. They, they might hate this person so much. They're constantly accusing them of drinking what they might not be. And over time, uh, it helps them just become more accountable with that person that they've hurt so badly. And uh, we actually have folks that they come to their graduation point and they say, well, I want to stay on this because I've added my parents as contacts and uh, it's proving to them that uh, I'm staying on the right track. And uh, like I mentioned, we can add unlimited contacts. So it's, it's become a nice accountability tool for, uh, for a family. That's fantastic. Who determines when graduation happens? I mean, you've mentioned graduation a couple of times. I imagine it's different based on what the scenario is. How is that determined? Completely uh, case by case. Like We will recommend one year's term. And between it, they might negotiate six months. They might negotiate three months. Um, like I mentioned to you, the average person stays on it in six and a half months. If they have non-compliance issues, it might shed light on a problem that even the testing party didn't know existed. They're, they were in denial that they couldn't abstain for a weekend mm-hmm. with the kids. Right. And uh, it, you know, the idea is not so much to just revoke the children and, and, and the visitation. It's, you know, what needs to happen? Is it uh, is it AA? Is it a 12-step program? Is it outpatient programs? Is it just psychological help with the mental health expert, finding out what's causing the problem? Um, a lot of times it's more in-depth. They might need to go to an inpatient program um, and then, again, start to regain that trust with the, the loved ones. Right. Um Gosh, I hate the pun of saying that's sobering information, but gosh, it really is. There are so many applications for this kind of technology. I guess the last thing I'm curious about, and I don't really even think this is under your area, but what if somebody just says, I'm not doing that? I mean, you know, I'm fine and there's nothing to worry about and I'm not going to do it. What's generally the result? Do you know? I don't. I can, t- I can speculate. I mean, if there's some form of history with alcohol use disorder, then typically this parent's going to have supervised visitation. And there's nothing less intimate than having a third party that you don't know. Um, supervise your you visitation your yeah. yeah, at a neutral area for four hours and they're charging you $200 an hour versus something that's so discreet, easy to use that nobody needs to know, including the children that uh, that you're being monitored. 
Yeah, I just I love all of the second chance implications that even if things have gotten really bad, here is a way to hold yourself accountable and prove that you're willing to change to maintain these relationships. And, and you know, that obviously changes for your family, but keeping your family, you know, tethered to each other and building trust, you know, the kids to the adults and vice versa when the adult really shows the kids, look, I feel so serious about this relationship with you. I'm going to, you know, really work hard to maintain it. So thank you very much. There's so much information that you've covered about this device. And I really appreciate your taking the time to join us today, Mike. Thank you. My pleasure, Brooke. Thank you for having me. And just know that our website, soberlink.com, has a bunch of valuable resources for attorneys for mental health experts, for customers. It helps them understand the product best practices and helps them understand the agreements on both sides, what to expect to make sure that they have a successful program. Because the last thing you want is to be given a device not knowing what to expect. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Mike. So soberlink.com, whether you're a therapist or the the party to a divorce, or maybe you're concerned about someone in your life who may need sort of an accountability tool. Um, it's just remarkable how much things have changed since my children's father and I divorced and passed a notebook back and forth between, you know, on our way to get kids. My next guest is going to be able to give us some real world information on technology such as this. Robert Epstein is the founder of Epstein Family Law in Dallas, Texas. And he also is, I believe you said 10 years sober, is that correct? That's correct. 10 years of sobriety, congratulations. That's that's a big accomplishment. Thanks, Brooke. I'm more proud of that than I am of being a, a family lawyer, that's for sure. Well, you're helping so many people and and really in both venues, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to the point where you are now? Sure. So uh, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, for me, I've been practicing family law in the Dallas area, Dallas-Fort Worth area for uh, approximately 15 years. And uh, after about five years of practicing family law, uh, I developed some pretty bad drinking habits. And it got to the point where uh, I realized I needed to do something about it and I wanted to do something about it. And so I went to uh, visit uh, one of the professionals who we use, one of the experts we use for drug and alcohol abuse disorders uh, in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And uh, I met with him and he says, well, what do you want to do about it? And I said, well, I want to stop, you know, so he took me to my first AA meeting and I've been going since. And that was that was about 10 years ago. Wow. And at that point, were you still married? I was. Yes. Yes, I was. And I didn't want I didn't want to get divorced. Uh, it was not an ultimatum that my wife gave, uh, but it was certainly leading to uh, some fights in our marriage and, and just leading to, you know, other problems. And, uh, I knew that I deserved better than that. And I'm glad that I, I went to AA because if it wasn't for AA, I don't know where my life would have ended up. And, uh, I'm, I'm a much better person for it the past 10 years for, uh, for stopping and, and getting help. I have countless friends, 
family members, people I work with who have talked very compellingly about the difference AA has made in their lives and also by extension, Al-Anon for the families affected by these issues. So um, tell us a little bit about your perspective when you have a client who comes to you and, you know, obviously the marriage is failing and you can detect that maybe there are some substance abuse issues. How do you generally approach that? Sure. So uh, if, if the concerned parent or, or spouse, uh, you know, wants to make sure that the, that the children are safe or that he or she is safe from the other parents or spouse, uh, then there are certain things that can we that we can get, uh, like a temporary restraining order that you know sounds worse than it really is, but it it would allow for a judge to put in place some orders on an emergency basis for the safety of the parties and the safety of the children in the case of divorces where there are children. And a temporary restraining order is required to uh, be heard within 14 days. So it's a band-aid that the judge imposes. Uh, on the family. And then there's an evidentiary hearing where you go to court with your attorney and put on evidence about what orders need to be uh, made for, for the family going forward. And, and one popular request uh, in the case of, of alcoholism and alcohol problems is for the parent who has a drinking problem uh, to be put on Soberlink. Uh, much like what Mike was, was telling us earlier, it is an invaluable tool uh, to help with accountability for families where there are al- 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 uh, excuse me, alcohol allegations. Is it typically a wake-up call for that person, or do you think that normally it's already been, maybe this is a last resort situation? Sometimes it is a wake-up call, and I love when it is a wake-up call, and I love when that person takes advantage of, of getting second chances and being able to get on a program, abstain from alcohol, prove that he or she can do this for for not only for themselves, but for their children. Uh, but sadly, too often, it's not a wake-up call. And a lot of folks who get put on a sober length device, sadly, are, are in denial about needing it from my experience. Right. Well, I mean, just from my own background, I was trying to imagine what that conversation would be like. And in your case, you know, you recognized your own problem and decided to do something about it. But I do think people who are in denial or just who don't want to be corrected or held accountable wouldn't necessarily just say, sure, let's just start that up and I'll generate some clean tests here. That's correct. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it's oftentimes not something that's voluntarily uh, um, done by the, by the person who has allegations against them. Uh, but you know, sometimes they'll do uh, a path test or an ETG or analysis, which would which is what Mike was describing earlier. But again, the window of detection there is only a few days, or you know, maybe a, a, a couple of weeks in the case of the path blood test. So. You, you know, the Soberlink is, is really the most accountable device in terms of testing for alcohol. And uh, you're right. Most people won't voluntarily do that. But if, you know, if somebody fails a PETH test or an ETG test, uh, which which oftentimes the judges will order when there are allegations of alcohol problems, uh, then then Soberlink is the next step. And, and then hopefully, you know, they get on the right path. So you just said that the the judge might order it. Is it something that you as the attorney could just propose like, hey, are you willing to do this before it even gets to a hearing? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody could reach agreements without having to go to court. Um, of course, it takes two to reach an agreement. And, you know, oftentimes if, if I'm representing uh, somebody who has an al alcohol allegation against them, I'll say, well, you know, let's let's prove that you don't have a problem. Right. You know, let's let's do X, Y and Z and prove that you don't have a problem. And then that can be very compelling evidence, just like what Mike was saying earlier. Uh, by the time you actually go to court, if you have to, you can you can nip that allegation in the bud with the proof that you have. So let's say your client is the person who thinks the spouse is abusing alcohol. And like we were saying, maybe not their first choice, maybe not their first rodeo, maybe they've even been to treatment before. I mean, I know a lot of these problems are pretty intractable. So let's say you're representing the party accusing the other party. And that person, it's sort of the same question I put to Mike. What if that person, the suspected abuser, uh, substance abuser, not child abuser, what if that person just says, I'm not doing that? What Can you just walk us through what the next steps would be? Sure. I, then I think that their, their uh, possession time, like Mike said, is going to be supervised. They're going to have indefinite uh, parenting time that is supervised uh, with a professional supervisor. In some cases, it might be a mutual friend or a family member who both sides can trust, which as you, as you can imagine, in a divorce, that can be difficult to find. Right. I mean, the options are not very good for somebody who's not willing to demonstrate a pattern of sobriety if there are alcohol allegations. And so supervised possession, supervised visitation is, is a real risk to that person. And they're probably not going to be able to step up their parenting time unless they actually do what they need to do to show that they're not drinking. Right. So then if it does get to a hearing and the judge sees, well, this was offered to this person and they declined, then probably the judge has a reasonably clear picture of what's going on. Would you agree with that? A absolutely. And, you know, it, it's it's a little tricky because, of course, alcohol is is legal. We're not in prohibition times. Uh, so it, it's it's allowed and, and it's perfectly uh, fine and, and healthy in moderation for many, if not the vast majority of people. But for some people, it's not. And, you know, if, if you're being accused of something uh, that that impedes on your time with your children, which is one of the most precious gifts anyone can have is time with their children, then it definitely raises a red flag. Mm -hmm. So you said you've been doing family law for about 15 years. Is that yes, that's, that's what correct. you said? How many, if you had to just, and nobody's going to hold you to this, but if you had to throw out a number, how many times a percentage wise, do you think that alcohol use has come up in the case of a divorce? I would say probably 25% of, of divorces that I deal with, uh, deal with an addiction of some sort, uh, maybe even more than that. Um, I'm, I'm trying to be conservative by saying 25%, but it may, it may even be more than that. It, it is a common theme that I see in failing marriages. And if the marriage is failing and, and one party has come to you to discuss representation, oftentimes when the divorce proceedings get underway, are the children, I mean, I guess it depends on their ages, but what I'm trying to get at is how often is this a known problem that is just sort of the elephant in the room versus this may be one aspect of many that is causing the marriage to fail? It's a great, great question. Most of the time, it's a known problem. Most of the time, it's not going to come as a surprise to the person who's being asked to take a test that they're being accused of a problem. 
sometimes I will say sometimes it does come as a surprise and there may be reasons for that. Um, I hate to say this, but you know, some, sometimes lawyers will, will try to make allegations to help their client when really it's just a red herring. It's just a distraction. A distraction. Yeah. And, and, and there's not really a problem there, but then in those cases, again, I think you can nip it in the bud by saying, Hey, nothing to see here. Look at all these clean tests. Right. Exactly. So as as we talked, I talked a little bit with Mike, you know, part of the reason for coming up with a, a show like this, it really started with the workbook, which I know you've already seen, but Brilliant. The show, thank Brilliant you. Workbook. Thank you. I, I really am grateful to you for saying that. This show is about sort of pivoting or repositioning oneself when a relationship fails. And this is probably a good time to point out that could be a legal marriage. It could be a domestic partner situation, but anytime an intimate relationship fails and there's a breakup or a divorce, I want this show to be a resource for people to realize that it's not, I mean, it is the end of something. Absolutely. But it can also be the beginning of something else. And I think at my age, looking at my friends who got married really young and who are still married to their partners, you know, a lot of water is under the bridge and they, whether it's the male or the female really feel like, okay, well, you know, I'm in this marriage. We've been married for, you know, 30 plus years and this is what I'm doing. But if the relationship should break down, and again, that's not my business, but if it does, I think so many people feel like, well, this is what I've been doing all along, and how do I move forward from here? And so the objective of the show is to help listeners, no matter what situation they're in, determine, actually intentionally decide on some steps for the go forward right? Like I'm going to do this or, and in the workbook, I talk about, you know, what are your goals? Do you want to take a huge trip? Do you want to write a book? Like what have you always wanted to do that maybe when you were busy and married and had young kids and two careers, you know, you weren't necessarily thinking of what do I want to do? So talk a little bit about how you came to the decision to go get some help with this and how you repositioned even with Within maybe the structure of your marriage? That's a great question. I, I really think it comes down to asking yourself, what, what do I deserve? And I'm not saying that you, you should go out and seek entitlements with that question by asking yourself, what, what do I deserve? But the question is, you know, what do I deserve? How, how should I be taking care of myself? And for me, it was clear that alcohol was le leading to a lot more problems for my life than benefits. And so I, I came to the conclusion that one way that I know I could take better care of myself is to kick this bad habit I had of daily drinking. And um, I'm, I'm glad that I, I couldn't have done it on my own. I'm glad that I sought help for it. And so when you have these types of issues in any dissolution of a, of a relationship, like a divorce, you should be asking yourself, what, what do I deserve? And if it deserves living free of this toxic home or environment where I'm at, then yes, you, you deserve that. You deserve better. Everybody has a part in the breakup of their marriage. 
nobody is completely innocent. That said, some people have more of a part than others. And if you find that you're in a really toxic relationship with somebody who is making you feel bad, who is not lifting you up, who's not supporting you, then yes, you do deserve better because that's not what a marriage is about. So flip that over for me and talk about it now from the perspective of someone dealing with a client. Do you share your information? Do you share your background with your clients? And do you, I know your primary job is to guide them through the legal process of dissolving a union. And I know most family lawyers just just by nature take on a little bit of the emotional you know stress and and understand that it's a very difficult time but how do you how does your practice of law how does it get informed by what you've experienced in your personal life oh tremendously and and that's one of my favorite parts of being a family lawyer is that in so many ways not only am i an advisor on legal issues but just on life issues in like a coaching type of relationship. And and I can't tell you how many times I tell clients the things that I learned and picked up in my 12-step program, in my AA program. And that Can you give us an example of one, like something that you would tell almost anybody who walks into your office? What is something you picked up from AA that you feel like is universal knowledge or should be, I'm sorry, it should be universally acknowledged? Acceptance is the answer to all my problems. That's not to say that you have to approve your situation, but you have to accept the things that you cannot change. And if you accept the things that you cannot change, then a lot of your mental anguish about trying to change those things that you have no control over will dissipate. Once you practice acceptance, you will learn that you are in control of what you can control and only that, which is you. And if you're doing your part and keeping your side of the street clean, then you should be very, very uh, proud of yourself because that's what it's about. And you can't change other people. And so they teach that in, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. They teach that in Al-Anon. And it makes all the difference in the world. It was something that I never learned as a child. And, you know, I wish I would have. How does it impact your parenting? I mean, do you tell the kids the same kinds of things? I mean, I, we're here as parents to mold and shape our children up to a certain extent. And we recognize they're born with free will. And, and sometimes that's just an astonishment to me. But how does that inform the way you parent? It, it, it does. Uh, it absolutely does. And to, to teach your children about the world that we live in. And, you know, to teach responsibility and responsibility for your own actions and only your own actions. And let's not be so concerned about, you know, telling on somebody else or what your friend has a nice toy or whatever, you know, be grateful. And that's what AA teaches is, is gratitude, right? Be grateful for what you have. And, uh, and, 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 and look, again, I'm not saying that, that that means approving the situation that you're in. Being thankful and approving are two different things. You don't have to approve somebody uh, and somebody else's behavior, but you can accept that you're not in control of that person and therefore treat yourself a little bit better knowing that, you know, there's nothing you can do and you're not in charge of that. Right. I think that's great information for really almost anyone, whether you're a business owner, managing employees, whether you're a parent, you know, trying to help young kids strengthen, shore up their character 
it's just enormously valuable information. And, you know, so frequently we do get married at young ages and it just seems like the thing to do and we're in love and building a family together, but relationships are tough. And and to be able to carve out your own way in the context of a marriage with, you know, children and other people involved, it's tough. So I feel like someone... Someone like you who has the personal experience to say, you know, look, I really wasn't happy with the way things were going. And here are the steps that I took to make some changes. I feel like that's almost all anybody could want in a family lawyer. And then on top of it, the fact that you can guide them through the legal process. How often do you typically stay in touch with your clients after their after their legal case is resolved? Do you get to see kind of the fruits of your labor? Yes, that's one of my favorite things, especially when there are drug and alcohol issues, is to see success stories. And um, I do love to contact clients and check in and see how they're doing, you know, after a case is is, is done, because it's, it's, it's a relationship that we have. It's more than just, you know, a legal problem. Right. How can people who are listening get a hold of you? Thanks, Brooke. Uh, they can reach me at 972 232-7673. Our law firm uh, website is Epstein, PC, P as in Peter, C as in cat, dot com, epsteinpc.com. And uh, we'd be glad to uh, consult with anyone who's interested and in potentially addressing a family law problem. We do divorce, child custody, prenuptial agreements, really anything that's, that's a, a Texas family law problem. Uh, we handle it and we'd be eager to help however we can. So before we go, because we are running out of time, if you had someone walk into your office really at rock bottom, um, struggling with their marriage, struggling with their alcohol consumption, as someone who really is truly now on the other side of it, and you know, congratulations again, I know that's a big accomplishment. What's the one thing that you'd like for that person to know? That there's hope, that there's a second chance, that family courts believe in second chances, you just have to strike when the iron's hot and take the opportunity to actually prove that you can do this, take care of yourself and live a better life. Robert, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. I have an idea of how busy I think you are, and it means a lot to me that you would take this time out and share these thoughts with my listeners. That's my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, Brooke. And thank you, Mike. Yeah. And Mike, it was great to hear from you. This was a lot of information. I hope if it's something you enjoy sharing you know, on this topic, I'd certainly like to have either one or both of you come back to delve into any of these topics in more detail. I'd love to. Thank you very much. And uh, we're soon to be in the drug testing spectrum as well. Actually, our, our website went live today, so we'll be full spectrum drug and alcohol. Good. Well, then we'll have you come back and give us an update on that. Um, to the listeners, thank you very much for being with us today. Don't forget, you can download the Divorce Planning Workbook from planfordivorce.org. Again, that's planfordivorce.org. Next week, don't miss Tracy Malone. She's the author of Divorcing a Narcissist. You can't make this shit up. <laughs> it's a great topic for a book. <laughs> yes, <it> is. until <laughs> next time <laughs> until next time have a great week thanks for tuning in to plan for divorce your next chapter 
with host Brooke Benson. We hope today's episode has given you a new perspective on divorce and food for thought as you make some important decisions. Until we talk again, hang in there. You are not alone.